Uh, we're going to turn to the Word, though, right now. Uh, we are coming now, actually, to the end of our sermon series in Mark. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark, finishing out Mark chapter 15, 42, uh, to chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, we've been in Mark uh, for a considerable amount of, amount of time, and this is, again, the, the final sermon here, ending with uh, chapter 16, verse 8. Now, just a, a word before we get started here. You may have additional verses in your Bible after that. And they are likely in brackets also with some sort of note there saying that it's not in the original, not in the earliest manuscripts. Well, here's why. I just wanted to address this uh, b- before we get started. Uh, there are different, and there are a couple different endings that you'll actually find at the, uh, in the, the manuscripts of Mark. Uh, the two main ones are what we have here, the, the end in verse 8, and then we have a longer one, which is verses 9 through 20, those, that, that section that you might have in your brackets. And in all likelihood, uh, this is just not me saying this, but this is actually a, a great number of conservative biblical scholars, I believe that the, the, the original ending is actually in verse 8. Uh, because the, the other, this longer ending that we have is found more in, in the late manuscripts and not very many of the earliest manuscripts of Mark that we, that we have. Uh, verse 8 ends abruptly. It really does. It's a, kind of a strange ending to Mark's gospel. As we, if you've never read it or if your eyes go down there, it just ends with the, the women leaving and being afraid. Uh, and so it's believed that the lo- this longer ending that we have then, which would be verses 9 through 20, was actually probably added on at some point later to help further explain uh, what happened after the empty tomb. Uh, because, and, and if you read it, too, if you go through it, the stuff in there is likely true also. In fact, it's pulled from, from a lot of the other Gospels that's put in there, and it's even for references for Acts. Um, but again, this, uh, it was probably added on later to help give some more explanation. And that's one reason why verse 8 is likely the original ending. But another reason, though, why is because the writing in verses 9 through 20... Uh, this longer ending doesn't actually fit very well with the rest of Mark. In the, the original language, in, in the Greek manuscripts, it actually reads very different. There's all sorts of language that's used, these words that you're like, this, is, this isn't used anywhere before in, in Mark. The, the way that it's written in the style is, is quite different. You kind of get a little bit of that if you, if you read it in English there, but the language and the vocabulary is a lot different. And yes, admittedly, verse 8 does, very, does end abruptly. But as we've gone through Mark, though, isn't that consistent with how Mark writes his gospel? There's a lot of these quick scenes. There's a lot of these transitions. And it causes the reader to think. In fact, the question from the very beginning of Mark is, who is Jesus? Well, this is Jesus here at the end. He's risen from the dead. Now, I'm not saying any of this here for, to get any of you all to, to question your English Bibles or to question the authenticity of the New Testament. None of that's true there, right? Uh, that, that's, uh, and again, again, I'm not the only one saying this. There's, there's a good many uh, conservative b- b- biblical scholars here who, who would have the same idea here. In fact, that's why it's in your English Bible. It's in brackets, right? Uh, but I want you to know, though, that you can have the highest confidence and the highest authority in the, the English translation, the English Bible that you have. In fact, the methodology that goes behind 
Uh, the reason why we, we believe it's, it's verse 8 is the ending, the whole methodology is why you can actually have the highest confidence. Because, they've, because people have, scholars have combed through thousands of manuscripts and seen and put them together and matched and said, this is in all likelihood the most original that we have. So there's, and there, it's interesting too, there's nothing doctrinal, there's nothing ethical or anything at stake here in some of these, these debated verses in these ones or in any of the others throughout the New Testament. But rather here, what this is, I, I'm trying to do here, just give us an, uh, uh, give you a brief explanation and, and answer any questions ahead of time here on why. Why is this the last sermon when we have more, it looks like we have more going through Mark. So let me go ahead and pray for us as we, as we get started here, and then we're going to read Mark uh, 1542 to 16.8. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Jesus, your son, Father, who took on flesh for us, who lived among us, who died for us and for our sins upon a cross who was raised for us, who was ascended for us. We thank you for this Jesus given to us here, revealed clearly to us in the Gospel of Mark. We thank you for the time that we've had over the past year plus of being able to comb through this, these scriptures and to understand who Jesus is. The ways that he, that he has come to us as a Redeemer the ways that he has called us to follow after him and his goodness and his mercy for us. We pray that Jesus Christ would shine through here one last time. That as we finish with Mark, though, also, that this would not just be the end of our thinking about Jesus here from Mark, but that it would continue to, be, to be, have the, the question before us as we continue to think over and over, who is Jesus? This is who he is. The one who's raised, the one who is glorified, the one who deserves all our praise. We pray that he would be more believable, more beautiful to us than when we first came this morning here. We pray that your spirit would be with us this morning, raising our hearts to life, being with the man preaching this morning. Lord, bring our souls to life. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, 42 to 16, 8. This is God's word. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? 
and looking up, they saw that the tomb had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. A seed is planted in the ground. A dead, lifeless kernel is put into the earth and covered over. But from that seed comes life. A green sprout emerges from the ground. That inert, lifeless kernel shoots forth new life bursting from the earth. Jesus' body was placed into the earth, truly dead and truly lifeless as he was taken down from the cross and put into the grave, covered over like a seed. And from his dead corpse, life sprouted forth and it burst into the world as his body came back to life, as his lungs began to breathe in the cool atmosphere of the tomb, as his heart began to pump blood once more and his flesh became warm to the touch and his human soul was brought back into union with his physical body. He was just as alive as you and I are here sitting. And yet, as the stone was rolled away and as he walked victorious from the tomb, there was something different about him. He was a new creation in his humanity. In chapter 16, verse 2, it says that this was on the first day of the week. It was not a, a week patterned after creation, but here, this is a week that's now patterned after new creation. New creation walking across the earth. The earth that had received all of the dead throughout history. Humanity returning to the very dust of the earth from which we were made. It couldn't hold the resurrected Jesus. He's the new creation. And like a seedling which grows up from a plant. And it gives birth to more seeds then that continue to bring forth more life. The risen Jesus continues to spread his life across the world. Seeds are scattered. New life sprouts and bringing forth more and more life that goes in, in barren places. Upon the cursed soil grows life. The seedlings of new creation continue to grow. Brothers and sisters, this is resurrection. This is resurrection. It is life growing up amid death. And new creation claiming what belongs to Jesus. It is the risen and victorious Jesus Christ at work in the world through his life-giving spirit that's sent to his church. Resurrection is what the church has always believed in. It has always been the source of power. It has always been the source of hope for the church. It was the heartbeat of the apostles in their early ministry. It was the strength and the hope of the martyrs as they went to their deaths. Why does the gospel of Mark end so abruptly though? Why is there no explanation at the end that he gives about the news of the resurrection and going forth? Why is there no task that's given to the disciples? Because the original audience, those first hearers, 
knew it firsthand. Mark was writing to Gentile Christians, to the church in Rome, to a, a Roman Christian audience, and their existence there in the heart of the Roman Empire was living proof that the resurrection and its power had actually moved across the world, and they had confidence that it would continue to do so. The fact that they were there listening could only be explained by the real, true resurrection of Christ. They knew that there was no other explanation for it. Because how else could this message of Jesus spread across the empire amid persecution, religious persecution, social persecution, political persecution? How could it spread amongst per, uh, uh, amid persecution, amid speculation, amid skepticism that was just as rampant as it is in the world today, and all at great cost to its adherence. And, considering that that message of resurrection came from a, a group of uneducated Jewish rejects from, from a nowhere corner of the Roman Empire. And with the first witnesses as the most unlikely choice imaginable, that the first witnesses for, were women whose witness in this time and age there wouldn't it, would have been so disregarded that a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed in court. See, those Gentile Christians in Rome, they knew that the only way that this message of power, that this message of resurrection and life came to them was because Jesus Christ truly was and is still today alive. The church is built upon resurrection. A real time and space resurrection of Jesus Christ with the hope of resurrection to come in, a real, in an equally real time-space reality. And with resurrection power filling us. For a brief outline of where we're going here, this is a new reality having broken forth into the world. And a reality that is not only to come, but a reality that is right now for us. Okay. Those are the three points I want to go through here. First, resurrection is more than historical fact. But it is a new reality of life. Resurrection is more than just a historical fact. It is a new reality of life. The women came to that tomb early in the morning and there was no doubt about what they saw. The tomb was empty. Jesus was gone. There was no hallucination that they had. Mark was recounting the witnesses from them all, all of the women there. And not to mention even the later witnesses who saw Jesus also. A stolen body wasn't even in their frame of mind. They knew the task would be difficult. They knew that there was actually no real motivation to, to steal the body because no one expected Jesus to rise again despite the words that he said over and over ahead of time that he would rise again. Everyone was shocked and surprised. It was a real resurrection. And it left them afraid. Verse 5, the, the women go to the tomb and they're They're alarmed. It's, the, the word that's used in the original language there is, is actually one of, of, of terror and dread at seeing the empty tomb. And then verse 8, they leave the empty tomb afraid. They're not afraid because of the angel. They're afraid because of the overwhelming nature and weight of what was, what was upon them. And it's the same with the other disciples in, in, in the other Gospels. Right? Jesus appears to them... And they're in terror because, ah, oh, they think they've seen a ghost. What they needed was more than just a bare fact about Jesus rising. What they needed was revelation. They needed an explanation of what it meant that Jesus was indeed risen from the, get, from the dead and that he was alive again. 
Right? This revelation is what Jesus would tell them afterwards. He would explain why he was, was risen and, and its goodness. His explanations in those days between the resurrection and the ascension. But the thing is also his continued explanations, his continued interpretations revealed by him through his spirit. Written for us in his word. It's one thing for you to, to affirm the resurrection. It's one thing to affirm it. But it's something entirely different to live into the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything in the history of the world. It has changed everything with the arc and trajectory of humanity. It is an event which is historically verifiable and believable. But affirming all that, affirming the resurrection, is not the same as living into the resurrection. Of having it form your life. To be the new reality which guides you. To have your, your it be your, it, to change your thinking. To have it change and alter your perceptions of the world. To have it be the foundation of your hope, your joy, your expectations. Professing with your lips, confessing with your mouth is not the same as resting upon it as the bedrock of your life. Or letting it form how you live. Being intellectually convinced that Jesus rose from the dead isn't enough. It's faith. And that comes through understanding its significance. And understanding its significance comes through meditating on the continued revelation of Christ. Of Jesus' words himself, they're speaking about the resurrection. Of the Apostle John's words of his life that's shared in communion with him. Of the Apostle Peter's life, of his life being, or his words of his life being a living hope in which we are born again. Of Paul's words about his life then being the first fruits of new life and of resurrection which comes to those who are in him and, then the, and, the, and, and to the created order. They're the words of the Spirit of Christ himself which is given to the church. Christianity hinges upon the resurrection. It depends upon the historical, the historical fact of Jesus emerging alive from the tomb. And you must acknowledge that. You must acknowledge it for hope. You must acknowledge it for integrity. Because both hope and theology break, break down without, without a resurrection. But that's not it, though. You also must live into the reality of the resurrection. And what's, what is that? What's that mean? Well, second, resurrection is a future reality. Resurrection is a future reality. <clears throat> when Jesus rose, it changed the course of history. The long history of death was reversed for the first time. Jesus rose, or sorry, Jesus died, but he didn't succumb to death. He died as real of a death as anyone else, but death didn't have the final word with him. His resurrection broke that ages-long chain of people dying. He isn't the, oh, the one exception, but rather he changed the course. He's the first of many. Resurrection is now in store for those who believe in him. It's for individuals. There is mortality that is to be traded for immortality and the glory of Christ. But there's also renewal and resurrection of, of, of the cosmos, of ruin and the futility of the world here that will be exchanged for flourishing and for transformation. 
Three times in Mark, Jesus ahead of, of his death and, and, and rising again, he said three times it's necessary that the Christ suffer and die and rise. Yes, his suffering and his death, those that, that was necessary, that is necessary for atonement and for forgiveness and for rescue and redemption for our sins. But Jesus says it's necessary that the Christ suffer, die, and rise. Don't forget that his resurrection is necessary too. Because the problem is, all, is not just our own sin. The problem is also the lost glory and life that is woven into the fabric of the world. And resurrection changes that. Resurrection, it, uh, it, 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 takes the res- it is a renewal, it is a, re- a restoration of that life and glory. Three times Jesus spoke this to his disciples. It's necessary that the Christ suffer, die, and rise. And three times it's spoken because it's too easy for us to forget this fact. Resurrection is the new creation kingdom of the risen Jesus bursting into the world. Right, That first day of the week when this is happening, the resurrection, a week like like, like the creation week, set forth by God as life bursts forth during that first creation week. But it's a new week, the beginning of a new week. It's a new creation week where new life now will burst forth again and it will renew the, the creation from its fallen state. Resurrection is new creation. The death is a symptom of the spoiling of, of life as we know it now and of sin. But Jesus' new life, though, is the first breaking forth of new creation, bringing, beginning with him and then extending to humanity that's in him. And the world being remade and refashioned like, like the old with a sense of familiarity, but with, at the same time, a new luster, with a glorified existence, like Jesus' new body, raised and recognizable, People knew that, that, that they, could, they could recognize Jesus in a way, but also at the same time with a glory that gave them pause and gave them wonder. If you're united to, to Christ in his death by faith, then that union with him also extends to his life. It's new life given to us. There's new life in store. Because Jesus is raised, then you in him will also be raised. And that means that death has no final say over you any more than it did for Jesus. His body is like the body that is in store for you. His body of glory and immortality is the same that is given to you. It means that things like cancer, things like disease, things like old age, that's not who you are if you're in Christ. Things like Alzheimer's, things like birth defects, car accidents, The resurrection speaks louder than any of those things. There's real hope amid tragedy. Because resurrection will reunite our souls with our bodies, but not worn out bodies like we experience right now. We get sick and we have severe limitations or even the disgust and disdain we may feel for our own physical bodies. But all the fallen effects will be burned away like refinement. We'll bear new creation bodies in a new creation world with the same glory and with the same refinement here. This is a sure hope and it's a reality that is to come for those who are united to Jesus. But it's not just merely something heard and something professed. It's also a reality to be lived and known right now. That's a third point here. 
Resurrection is a reality to be lived now. Resurrection is a reality to be lived now. It's not just something to look forward to. It's something that we live into now. We are people who live into the resurrection. We are people who know its life and power and we lean into it. The new creation has burst into the world with Jesus' resurrection. So how now do we, do we live into it and know its power right now? I'm going to say in three ways. Implication, its implications, formation, and anticipation. Implication, it has very real implications for you and for how you live. Because without resurrection, we are people of fear. If the tomb had been closed and had been inhabited that morning, what would that have meant for Mary and for the women when they got there? What would that have meant for the disciples? What would that have meant for Peter? It means that the nightmare that they have had lived at, the, at, at the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus would have continued. The shattered dreams that they would have had about, about salvation would have continued to be just to lay there in shards. Disappointments and the crushed expectations and misplaced hopes would have been there still. The heartache that they would have had at seeing their master hanging naked from a cross would have continued to lie within their hearts. For the disciples, there would have been fear because they had given everything to follow him and then would now they also be pursued just as Jesus was pursued. How about Peter and the guilt that he felt? As he... As he denied Jesus three times and he had failed him despite his promises that he had made that he would never abandon him. And so if and when death came upon them all, all of those would be the stories of their lives. But resurrection changed all of that. They no longer had fear, but they had hope. There was no longer disappointment, but they could laugh then because their Savior was alive. That there would no longer be guilt but forgiveness. And Jesus would be the one who would tell them all this. In fact, even forgiveness. Why again does it pull, was, do, do they pull Peter out here? To go tell the disciples and Peter. Because Peter needed to hear those words of reconciliation in life. Peter was overwhelmed with his guilt. But he needed to hear that Jesus had grace and mercy for him, that his cross had taken away his sins and that there was indeed life for him because his Lord and Savior, Jesus, was risen for him. What about you? Jesus is alive. He's alive right now. How does that change you? You don't need to live in fear. Whatever those fears that you have might be, whatever disappointments you might have, Whatever shattered dreams you have, whatever heartaches, whatever guilt sets you may feel, those may weigh upon you. But Jesus, though, says, the risen Jesus says, his burden is light. He says none of those are definitive. His burden is light because his burden is life. It's resurrection. He is very real and alive right now. We don't speak about him as being dead. He is alive. The living Jesus is at work today. Do we expect him to work? 
Right? He has an interest in spreading his new creation. Do we expect this Jesus, this risen Jesus, to be at work in very real ways, in, in lives? Do we expect him to work in very real ways in the church? Do we expect his kingdom, the seeds of his kingdom, to not only be scattered, but to grow up and flourish? We ought to because the spirit of the living Christ is at work. And as he works in a person's life, he raises them both body and soul. Jesus is raised in his whole person. Bodily resurrection is to come. But even right now, though, if you are in Christ, you are alive. Your soul is alive in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you are a new creation. And when was the last time you saw a dead, free bear, a, bed, a, a dead tree bear fruit? Have you ever seen berries bursting from a dead bush before? Blooms on a dried up plant? No. Right? The, the tree or, or the bush needs to be alive for the fruit and the beauty to emerge. Is, Jesus raises our hearts to life. And a heart and a soul that's united to Christ isn't dead. It's, it's alive. It's alive in him. For fruit and goodness to burst forth from it. Signs of resurrection that's at work within us. There are implications for how we live right now. But also, second, for formation. Resurrection forms us. The church is a people who are formed by the reality of the resurrection. Resurrection forms the patterns of our lives. It, it forms our everyday habits. It changes how we look at life, how we live, how we celebrate, how we mourn and experience sorrow. It affects how we read the news, how we eat our meals with others. How we live in relationship with others. It alters the things that matter to us and the things that really we don't care that much about. Knowing and being formed by resurrection is like putting on glasses which alter our perception. If you wear glasses, do you remember that first time that you put, that you put those glasses on? Everything came, came to focus like, like it hadn't before. You were able to see things like you hadn't before. Resurrection is like a new set of glasses. We see life unlike before, and we see it now free of distortions. We begin to look for evidences of the kingdom being alive and well. We look for the green of new life, of, of, of new creation to burst into the world and to burst into real lives in unexpected ways. When grieving happens, yet not like the world grieves, when hearts are cultivated and tender, heart, or and tender shoots emerge, when people serve and seeds of resurrection are sown and they're watered, anticipating new sprouts, labor that's done in service to Christ, acts of creation that we do with our own hands and our minds are done with new love and reflecting new creation's values. This fall, we, we, re, we reseeded our, our front lawn, not just with grass, though, but also with clover and wildflowers for it to sprout up and bloom. And then we have had this sort of anticipation as we've been waiting for and seeing these new sprouts, putting the, 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 the seed down and watering it, and then being able to see the new shoots germinate and come up. And then the various grasses, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. That's, that's, I think that's a clover. Oh, what's going to happen over here? And that, that's going to continue on until the spring when we begin to see more clover and flowers begin to bloom in our yard. Right? It happens slowly sometimes. 
And at different rates of growth as well. But when you see those blossoms come up, when you see those shoots come up, there's joy with, that comes with the green. It's an anticipation, uh, which, which, uh, which, which uh, there's more anticipation as the flowers then will blossom in the spring. Like we're, we're looking forward to it. Friends, as you look forward to the resurrection, do you look at it with this sort of anticipation? Do you celebrate when you see it? Do you pray when you don't? We can pray expectantly because resurrection is real. The faith that we profess, the faith that we live is is one that's been handed down to us. It's been given to us and we pass it along to the next generation. And sometimes truth is taught. But also we say sometimes truth is caught, right? In other words... Truths are taught in objective ways. Real objective truth is taught. But how it's taught is just as important. How is it caught? What value does it play into our lives? Right, that's caught. That's seen by how we live into it. We can teach the right arguments for the resurrection's historical factuality, and we need to. That's a defense of the faith. But for the next generation or for making disciples, how will they not only understand the truth, But how will they also understand the goodness and the beauty of that truth? How will they anticipate the resurrection? What are the attitudes and assumptions about its power and life? And what are our our implicit beliefs and anticipations that are passed along as we live and as we make disciples? That was the everyday reality of of the the, the apostles. They spoke the resurrection. They prayed the resurrection. They served in light of the resurrection. And all of their their lives were were lived knowing that Jesus is raised and that he is at work. Friends, the heartbeat of the risen Christ is the very heartbeat of the church. There are implications. It has formation for us, but there's also anticipation. We live the resurrection right now by our anticipation. What are the rhythms that happen as we live in the resurrection now? What what about our our gathering? We gather together. We gather joyfully together. It's how how we live our relationships right now is in anticipation of our relationships that we will have with each other in eternity. That grace and in ways that where grace and forgiveness is shown that we look out for one another and we live now knowing that even those people who we don't get along with very well will someday though our brothers and sisters will be loved dearly by us in the resurrection the gathering also takes place on sun- in sunday worship gathering together as people who know resurrection on the first day of the week as jesus was raised anticipating the resurrection to come for us We gather here together on this first day of the week as Jesus was raised to be reminded that resurrection is our life. That resurrection forms our lives that where we need to receive the news that we are new creations in Christ. That we receive the emblems of that promise at the the table. It's on the first day of the week because we need to begin our weeks with that. But we gather joyfully on Sunday here in worship and that in a way that's otherworldly. It's a mark to a decaying world that we are people characterized by life. But also by celebration. 
We aren't doing anybody any good by not living joyfully or embracing celebration. That's including Jesus. Jesus celebrated. Jesus had joy and Jesus will have celebration and joy when we are in the resurrection life with him. And our celebration right now is pushing back in rebellion against the darkness when we do so, we are announcing that the resurrection is here, that the resurrection is to come, and that death and sadness will soon be gone. Friends, we approach it also, we anticipate it with wonder. Right? Don't ever consider the resurrection in a cold and sterile way. Resurrection breaks through our boredom. It breaks through the monotony of our lives and our familiarity with the way that things appear. Its power can't be mastered. Jesus and his spirit are working in beautiful ways with a power that can't be limited to our individual consumption. He's alive. Isn't that a wondrous thing? Isn't it wondrous that resurrection has taken root in this world and it will someday bloom as Jesus remakes all things? Friends, resurrection is alive and well. Jesus is alive. And may his new life be much more than just a historical fact that we, that we profess and defend. But may it also be the reality which forms us as we live into the resurrection life. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people who left on our own would have no hope. Death and sin would be all there is for us. But we thank you for your mercy that Jesus Christ is alive, that he has risen for us, that he has given us hope, that he has given us purpose, that he has given us freedom, that he has given us life. Lord, may we live into and lean into the resurrection life for us to live even right now. That at the way that we, that we live and the way that we are formed that resurrection would, would be seen among us, that its joy would be among us, that its presence would be tangibly borne witness to. Thank you for the table, which we come to very shortly. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.